Good morning, and welcome to the Health Gorilla Treetop podcast. My name is Stephen Lane. I am the Chief Medical Officer at Health Gorilla and a practicing family physician and clinical informaticist. And I'm here with my good friend, Hannah Galvin, um, who is also a clinical informaticist, in her case, coming from the clinical discipline of pediatrics. Hannah and I have had a chance to work together on a number of initiatives over the past few years. Uh, she is clearly an innovative and strategic clinical informatics leader, uh, and she's very focused in the area of privacy, uh, bringing to that her perspective as a pediatrician with a really rich clinical background. So, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm happy to be here. It's great to see you. Yes, indeed. You know, I love doing these podcasts because it's like you, you and I could do this over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, but we get to do it here and share it with an audience. Um, and, uh, and that's an extra treat. So um, Hannah guides a number of national work groups and serves as an advisor uh, to the ONC, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT at the national level. Uh, has also worked with health IT vendors, uh, focusing primarily on the complex issues of privacy um, and uh, and really how to support the continuum of care. You know, we uh, Americans, adults, children have a complex journey that we traverse as we receive our health care, often involving multiple providers in different care settings. Uh, sometimes that is by intention because of a desire to uh, maintain privacy. And sometimes that is simply because of what happens to us in our lives. So uh, this January, earlier this year, uh, Hannah joined me uh, as a member of the ONC's Health IT Advisory Committee uh, and really brought a fresh perspective to that group. Uh, we are currently serving together on the HTI-1 Proposed Rule Task Force. Uh, so this is the task force that the ONC put together to really dig into and provide feedback on their new health data technology and interoperability notice of proposed rulemaking, uh, which is certainly a mouthful. But this is really designed to advance health IT, nationwide interoperability, and we will we'll dig into that in a little bit. So uh, since 2020, the past couple of years, Hannah has served as the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Cambridge Health Alliance. And I think you're, you're there in, in the Boston area this morning. Uh, right. Hannah's been in Boston for a while, I, I gather, having graduated from, from Wellesley and Harvard Medical School. Did you do your specialty training there at Harvard also? I did, Boston Children's Hospital. So you, you and I are uh, are similar in that I, I had a similar experience at the University of California where I've yeah. I've done everything there and been a part of that community since I was 17 years old. So uh, it's yeah. it's kind of interesting. Well, let's start off, Anna, by talking about how you got into this. You know, here you are, a pediatrician, Boston born and bred, and uh, why health IT? Why informatics? What was the path that led you to your current roles? Yeah, well, I think, you know, at, at, at its heart, ultimately what inspires me at a high level is is providing exceptional care to, to all individuals, even and, and perhaps especially those who may have been historically marginalized or, or not have had a voice at the table. And, and that's been a pr pr pretty consistent theme throughout my career and, and and what led me to pediatrics initially uh, with a focus on child abuse medicine, um, caring for some of the most vulnerable. And that's that's where I, I trained and when, what I trained to do and and um, and planned to do uh, initially. My, it led me to my first role out of training as a hospitalist and a child abuse physician. And and that was actually during the time of meaningful use. Um, and I was I was pretty tech savvy. Uh, I had worked my way through college and medical school, doing various technology-related related work, building websites and and, and help desk type roles, and and so I was I was tapped uh, to assist the organization that I was working for uh, at that time with the first ever Epic Big Bang implementation, and and I discovered that that I just loved it and and had a real pension for looking at things from that sort of systematic perspective. And that informatics really allowed me to do this. 
as I considered my overall career path at that time, I, I discovered that I wanted more exposure to this. So uh, a few years later, I spent some time working directly in the vendor space. I worked for Athena Health, uh, leading a team of clinicians to provide insights to uh, R&D, um, which allowed me um, to understand software development uh, from inception to delivery. It also allowed me to speak with operational leaders uh, across the country to understand their goals, their challenges, their pain points. You know, during this time, I, I continued to practice um, initially with a primarily immigrant population and, and later doing street medicine uh, for homeless and, and at-risk adolescents. Um, you know, ultimately, as a physician, serving patients and that that sort of um, goal of providing care to individuals is is what continues to drive me. So so coming back to healthcare operations was was a real good fit. And I spent some time kind of building my chops as an operational leader at, at Beth Israel Leahy Health. Uh, and and now I'm in, in the role as a senior leader at, at Cambridge Health Alliance, which really kind of fits me like a glove because I'm I'm leveraging innovative technologies uh, to advance the highest quality care for a diverse patient population, uh, which um, which is 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 a population that I really feel called uh, to serve and, and it's sort of consistent with with kind of my career path throughout. Uh, over the past decade or so, I've also been able to to build up my um, my network and my portfolio to to gradually advance work on the national stage as well. That I know you and I will will be talking about a little further. Um, related to granular segmentation and, and promoting patient-driven sharing of health information and equitable interoperability. And, and this is something that I'm really excited about because um, it has uh, potential uh, to, to significantly benefit all of us, and especially those who historically may have been upper, un, underrepresented um, in conversations as health IT infrastructure has has been developed in this country. And so I think, you know, my entire journey up into this point um, has has really led me to uh, gain insights and and um, be able to uh, to speak to this and to and to build uh, a portfolio that that now allows me to um, to to do this work uh, well on the national stage. That that's wonderful. I, I just I see so many parallels between our paths over the years. It's, it's really it's really exciting. It's also interesting to see how things have shifted. So when I was young doing homeless health care, there weren't a lot of homeless children. There weren't a lot of homeless families. You know, just at least where I was in San Francisco, that that wasn't what was happening. Obviously, that has changed dramatically. So to to hear that was where you got into this. It, it makes so much sense. So before we dive into the privacy issues, I mean, here you are, a uh, chief medical information officer at a prestigious health system, certainly a, a little bit of a counterpoint to what we've been talking about, street, street medicine and vulnerable populations, though clearly that's a part of what you're doing there. What have been your challenges as you've moved into this kind of a health system operational role? And what have you found to be kind of the levers that you can pull and the solutions that you've been able to implement there? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, I think like everywhere, whether you're at a safety net system like CHA, which is an academic public health system, a safety net system, um, though, though also uh, academic and part of, part of the Harvard uh, uh, system, um, right? Uh, or at, at a, uh, a much larger, more well-funded system, there are fiscal challenges everywhere right now. And I think, you know, our particular system, um, right, we receive a significant portion of our revenue from the Mass Health Waiver, which helps to offset the, the low fee-for-service payments that we receive from public payers. We, we have um, about 75% of our population uh, uh, receives uh, uh, their their uh, or, or is under under sort of public payers, um, and we also have significant reporting requirements um, uh, under under sort of that that program and our ACO program and commercial pay, you know payers. And so, uh, like everywhere, we need to do more with less, right? And and I think that's that's not specific to my health system. I think everywhere is feeling that right now. And it's not a health system problem. I think the vendors are feeling that right now. I think 
I think the ancillary systems are feeling that right now. I think the payers are, are feeling that right now. Um, I think one thing I should note in particular um, is that uh, I am, in addition to sort of the typical kind of CMIO role uh, as the senior clinical informatics leader for the organization, I'm also directly responsible for a number of the IT teams overseeing uh, about 75 of our clinical applications. So, so uh, I have a pretty broad role in that regard. And, and one of the big challenges of my job and something that, that I really enjoy doing as well is, is thinking through how we can align seemingly disparate processes, how to create strategic frameworks that allow for leaner methodologies and, and leveraging technology in innovative ways to do this. Um, like in many organizations, we have a matrix governance model and and far too many needs and requests coming in than could ever be completed. And I think everybody feels that way right now. Um, so I have developed new governance structures, uh, executive project management strategy around this, leveraging agile methodologies and some leadership tools that I stole from the Obama White House um, in, in order to, to create some, some leaner processes, allowing us to do more with less, which is particularly helpful in this fiscal environment. And, and I think those are things that health leaders everywhere are struggling with, right, and, and are challenged with. How do I prioritize, uh, right, when I have a hundred projects, right? What do I do first, second, and third? And what sort of falls below the line? And and I think those are, uh, you know, challenges that that all of us are facing right now, regardless of what part of the industry we're in. That, that makes makes perfect sense. You know, I, I'm going to go off, off uh, topic here a little bit. You know, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, we, we are all, as you say, trying to do more with less. And yet when you look at us as a nation, you know, in a global context, we're, we're ending up getting less and spending more, you know, sure. yeah. what, if anything, do you do in your work that allows you to look outside of the U.S. healthcare context or, or outside of healthcare to see where we might have opportunities to actually do better with less as seems to be done everywhere else around the globe, um, as opposed to the way we're, we're doing it here. Yeah, I mean, you know, trying to keep up, as you say, with what other countries are doing. Uh, we actually just a few weeks ago met with um, uh, a group from the NHS to understand what they're doing and and what sort of uh, innovations and um, uh, uh, you know insights we could offer them uh, and and what innovations and insights they could offer us. Right on the billing side of things, they have so much figured out that we have not, you know, and streamlined that we have not figured out here in, in this country. And yet there is much that we have figured out in uh, related to interoperability and technology uh, that, you know, you know, that they're, they're, you know, still figuring out, uh, you know, in, in um, the UK and in, in Europe. And so, right, I don't, I don't think that sort of one system is necessarily better than the other, but I think having those conversations and, and understanding what we can learn from one another uh, and having those open doors of communication uh, is is really helpful. And the more we can do that, uh, the more we can uh, grow and being open to 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 sort of understanding and and not being stuck in our one path uh, is is really the, the the key there. That that that's great. So so let's dive a little bit into the privacy issues because I know that this is near and dear to both both of our hearts. Um, you have yeah. unique perspective. You're a pediatrician. You you were drawn to the care of particularly vulnerable populations. It's hard to imagine any human being more vulnerable than a child who's being abused and is a victim of abuse. Uh, and, and, and that really led to, uh, I think, a lot of your perspectives uh, on health data privacy, especially as the data of, of kids and adolescents really does have special requirements. And as those kids traverse, or young people generally traverse healthcare systems, they often find themselves needing to get really confidential care that, that still needs to be coordinated back into their overall care. Sometimes needs to be communicated with 
certain parties, either providers or members of the family or care system and not others. So um, talk about that. Talk about those challenges and uh, and how how that has led you to do the work you're doing specifically in health data privacy. Yeah, you know, I think um, we have done a great job in this country um, in over the past 15 years or so around building the pipelines of interoperability, right? We have um, really stimulated the pervasive adoption of certified EHR technology across the country. We now have almost all hospitals, 96% or so of hospitals and over 80% of ambulatory practices um, have implemented certified EHRs. Um, and the, the vast majority of these are, are engaged in the major interoperable uh, interoperability domains. Um, we know that uh, most patients have been offered access to portals and, and the majority of those who have been offered access have been um, have, have actually accessed those portals. And, and there's been a huge jump in that over the um, course of the pandemic. Um, but I think while there are numerous benefits to being able to share data across the ecosystem, um, we have to be really thoughtful uh, about um, some of these really difficult cases, some, some which involve historically marginalized populations, which may not have been at the table for some of these conversations around issues that they personally experience. Um, around populations like adolescents uh, who have data that are protected uh, by state law um, and have data that, um, as you mentioned, are really nuanced in that some of which may need to be uh, protected from um, uh, uh, parents or guardians in certain cases, but not in other cases. Um, and and all of this may serve a little bit as a canary in, in, in a coal mine for other issues and other use cases that uh, may affect uh, larger populations as well. So I'll give some examples, right? For instance, when I was doing the street medicine, I frequently had patients who would ref refuse to go to the emergency room um, when they needed care because their data preceded them. So if their problem list had a diagnosis of substance use disorder or a, another potentially stigmatizing condition, their experience was that they would be prejudged um, and given suboptimal care. As a result, I remember one young man who had been literally hit by a truck, like literally truck versus person, um, and didn't want me to send him to the emergency room. And he said, Doc, they'll just think that I want drugs and they'll send me away. Individuals who have been treated poorly by the system, whether it's because of a behavioral health condition or some other potentially stigmatizing diagnosis, um, implicit and explicit bias very much exists. There's been a lot written about this and, and bias can exist against race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, body size, um, you know, or something else, right? And and their experience of, of receiving healthcare um, may differ from uh, many of the people who are who are writing policy, and I think it's really important for us to think about that when we're developing the technology, um, you know, or writing the policies that that are are driving interoperability. And and it's not just those right who are living at the margins. There was a, a survey done last year of a thousand patients, um, and uh, they found that that ninety two percent of them. It was done by by an independent survey company, and they found that that ninety two percent of patients believe that healthcare privacy is a right. Um, and 75% of those uh, patients express concern about the way that their personal health data uh, could be used uh, um, and, and, and protecting that privacy. Um, the majority were, were concerned about the way that it could be used against them. And that concern was significantly higher in historically marginalized populations like, like ethnic and sexual minorities. So when it comes to ad adolescent privacy, it, this is particularly complex, right? Part of this is is due to the fact that, like we said, you know, privacy laws 
um, are in place for certain types of data, and these can differ state by state. So it's really challenging for, for an EHR vendor, for instance, to develop flexible technology that could be easily in, implemented um, in support of each state law. It's also really difficult because adolescence is a time of gradual development, and that change is is different for everyone. So, right, all 12-year-olds are not the same, and all 17-year-olds aren't the same. And many state laws are written to sort of reflect that um, and, and leave some interpretation for the clinician. That's not uh, very helpful when you're trying to develop computable rules and to set standards or policies. So many organizations may say, like, you know, from the age of 12 to 17, patient proxies will not have access to notes or appointments. But as clinicians, we know it's much more nuanced than that, right? It, you know, a 15-year-old, you know, it, for a 15-year-old, it may not be appropriate for their parent to have access to their sexual history data, but they may have asthma or epilepsy, for instance, and their parent may need that, you know, information about their appointments to help them get to their subspecialty appointment. For instance, we know that oral contraceptive pills can um, uh, 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 interact with some anti-epileptic med medications. And so does the parent need access to, to that information if the patient is on uh, anti-epileptic medications, right? It becomes very nuanced, right? And depends very much on the patient's maturity level, right? And and what, uh, um, you know, but, but state laws may, may protect um, uh, the, just the reproductive health information. Uh, a mature 17-year-old may not need or want the parent to have access to any sensitive data on the portal, but but a 17-year-old with special health care needs may need the parent to have access to all of that information. So this requires not just one rule, but layers and layers of rules. Um, and there have been some organizations that have built those out but it's taken a lot of resourcing and other organizations can't necessarily uh, replicate that. Um, there's also a lot of emotion around these issues and parents generally want to be protective of their kids. Uh, we have some data that shows that over 50% of teen portal accounts are inappropriately accessed by guardians. And I think that is generally well-meaning parents and guardians who really want to protect their their children. Um, and, and it shows the difficulty of putting computable rules in place to support this privacy. And even when we may put some of those rules in place in the EHR, the parents and guardians are guarantors for those children anyway. And so the bill ends up going to the payer, except in certain circumstances where, where patients are treated in like Title X clinics. And so the explanation of benefits ends up going to the guarantor. Um, and so it's difficult to protect the privacy, you know, kind of on the, on the payment end as well. So it, it, it's very complex because of, uh, you know, that, that all of the pieces of interoperability, all of the dis different sim uh, systems set up um, and in the nuance kind of involved. You know, this is really one of those unintended consequences of the digitization of healthcare. Uh, and the evolution of interoperability, right? I mean, yeah. back when I trained, it was all on paper. You know, you you went to the doctor's office and, and you couldn't get it, you couldn't see it. There was just paternalism run rampant, but it allowed for really bespoke workflows that could address the needs of individuals. But in the, you know, in the opinion of the provider or the organization. And so we know that there's a potential mismatch there that trying to do this in a way that's consistent, that's equitable, uh, that's computable, puts us in a whole new world, but it's so complicated, as you say. It's, these are not rules that are easy to write. Exactly, and we're doing it after the fact, I think is is part of the issue as well, right? We. We've put the, the 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 pipelines in place, and now we're trying to go back and correct it. Which you know, it's it's great that we put these pipelines in place. We're doing, uh, you know, there are so many benefits to that. Uh, but now we're trying to go back and and uh, and figure out how to correct 
um, or address some of these unintended consequences. So, so another area that you've uh, given some thought to is maternal health and some of the privacy issues there, which are, are a little different, right? When you're talking about pregnancy, pregnancy care, uh, the management of, of maternal health and how maternal data impacts the child, what's the role of the father, you know, and other caregivers. Uh, and you did a panel on this uh, at HIMSS this year, which, which I found really striking. You want to talk about what what you see as the key issues in maternal health? Absolutely. You know, I think one of the reasons that maternal health can serve as a a good model from which we consider sort of interoperability challenges is that you know most women receive a lot of their prenatal care in one setting, typically an ambulatory setting, and then and then deliver their baby in a different setting, whatever that setting may be, sometimes an inpatient setting, sometimes a birthing center or even a home setting. But that necessitates the information pipelines that we've been, we've been talking about and data standards to support interoperable exchange. So so it's a good model to, to kind of think about um, sort of other pieces of, of uh, interoperability and privacy. And a lot of the data collected and exchanged during the prenatal and interpartum workflows is typically considered sensitive. Um, I should pause and sort of say that sensitive is an entirely subjective term, right? Something that I might consider sensitive may not be considered sensitive by you at all. And in fact, you might be considered that you might be uh, offended if some something that that I referred to as sensitive, you know, was was uh, was considered sensitive, right? For instance, like consider gender identity. For, for one individual, their gender identity might be something that they're still coming to terms with, or they they need to keep private from family or, or friends, even in this day and age, because they might face stigma or, or even safety concerns uh, related to that information. And for another person, that may be a, a key uh, definer of, of who they are. And so it may feel even sort of offensive to them to suggest that that would be considered sensitive in, in any way. You know, historically, state and federal laws have, have treated certain types of information as sensitive and typically sort of related to, to reproductive and sexual health care or genetic disorders, behavioral health and substance use. Um, for certain people, other information might be particularly sensitive as well, right? If I'm a professional athlete and I have an injury, that could be really sensitive if it got out to the media, that kind of thing. But Maternal health data often contains information that we more typically think of as sens sensitive, like testing for sexually transmitted infections, syphilis or HIV, history of previous pregnancies and terminations, social history, which now, now includes social determinants, um, that kind of thing. Um, and so, right, it, there's a lot of a lot of concern about sort of the, the uh, uh, sharing of, of that data. Right. And so um, that that, you know, in, in many ways is, is why it can 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 serve as a, a good model here. So in addition to the the data being transferred from the ambulatory setting to whatever setting the mom is going to deliver in, there is also the fact that the child's chart, this new baby's chart, includes a lot of that data as well as a pediatrician. It's really important for me to understand for the child's health, did mom have a sexually transmitted infection during pregnancy, like HIV, like syphilis, because that that impacts how I'm going to care for the baby. It's really important for me to know, is there intimate partner violence in this relationship if I'm going to appropriately care for the baby? But that means that the baby's record now is a new record and a record of an, uh, another individual has data that is pertinent to mom and and that also means that the baby's record is accessible to the other parent whoever that other parent may be right it may be uh, an ex-partner it may be a current partner right and that can cause safety issues frankly right if mom uh, uh, reports intimate partner violence, right? And now that's in the baby's record and the partner, the ex-partner 
um, uh, knows that or if mom has questions about the baby's paternity, right? And that's in the baby's record. Uh, we've already seen at least one case where mom has uh, reported financial insecurity and the partner received that or read that that information in the baby's record and used that information to uh, seek custody and, and won custody over the baby based on mom's social determinants data uh, in the record. And so uh, there, there are concerns about that now that you have this shared data um, in the record. Um, and so so I think we have to re be really thoughtful about that. And, and I think those were use cases that we haven't didn't really consider when we sort of went on on, on uh, electronic health records or started sharing this data. Additionally, now that we've been on EHRs for 20, 30, 40 years in some cases, right? There are children who have grown up with a longitudinal record. And so there are 18 year olds who are getting access to their own data who now have access to mom's data in their newborn record that mom may or may not want that child to, to know about. Maybe mom doesn't want the child to know about her prior abortion, right? Um, which may be documented in that record. And so I think we really need to be sort of thoughtful about that and um, and understand that uh, data is is being shared and that we need to uh, consider how to manage some of these use cases that, that previously were not considered. So so being thoughtful and understanding is a great first step, but then we need to really operationalize that, right? Correct. Uh, I think that comes down to the issues of consent. You know, how do we capture from an individual their preferences regarding what data is accessed, exchanged, used, in what context, by whom, et cetera? And, and how do we, you know, again, in this digital world, how do we capture that in a way that, that can then be acted on, that's computable, if you will? And uh, so you've, you've given a lot of thought to consent management. Uh, mm -hmm. and how document meaningful consent, how to uh, exchange and, and leverage this data as as people transition their care into different settings. And as you say, as as the care itself really transitions as as young people reach the age of majority, you know, how, how do we how do we do this? I mean, what what are what are the tools that are available for that? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, consent is a huge part of it. And then the other part of it is how do we actually segment the data? So if I say I don't want to share my reproductive health data with my optometrist, how can I share all of my other data with my optometrist, but not my reproductive health data? So there are sort of two pieces working in tandem, right? The consent piece, and then the, the granular segmentation of the data. And, and my work is focused more specifically on the granular segmentation standard, but they're, they're really closely interwoven. And uh, we need to advance a maturity model that will allow patients to specify their privacy choices and then the downstream technologies to, to respect those, those choices. Um, and there are some, some groups, specifically uh, the community-based care and privacy work group that are, that are working on fire consent, uh, uh, the fire consent resource and, and Stewards of Change Institute that we're working closely with around sort of bringing together uh, groups to, to sort of test consent. Consent can mean sort of a number of, of different but closely related things, right? There's the sort of ethics framework, and then there's sort of the technical piece. From an ethics framework, we can talk about informed consent, right? How an individual can know what they're agreeing to, right? Most of us sort of sign our Apple terms and conditions without reading them. They're written in, in sort of legal ease. And, and so there's sort of the larger questions of kind of what is the what are the baseline requirements needed of any consent document? So if I am withholding th that reproductive health information from my optometrist, do I do I fully understand the risks and implications of, of what I'm doing? Do I understand that there are other ways that my optometrist might be able to glean that information from, from other information in my medical record, right? And so that that's sort of all part of consent. What what makes a competent individual to be able to give that consent? And, and the adolescent issue comes up again here, right? If I'm a 15-year-old and I don't want to share my reproductive health data, do the state laws allow me only to withhold that from my parents or guardian? Or can I 
uh, withhold that also from other providers. I don't think, you know, we've, we've really sort of tested that fully and there are a lot of open questions there. But then there's sort of the technical pieces, right? Um, we have to, so, so, so if I indicated my desire to request those restrictions or those privacy preferences, then we need a technical policy to, to put in place um, and we need the ability to restrict future disclosures based on those consent rules, um, based on sort of the security tags and, and, and granular segmentation. And, and all of that needs to work seamlessly together in order for, for the, the patient privacy to be uh, preferences to be respected. And so like, like I was saying, from a, from a technical perspective, there are a handful of, of consent management platforms that have been developed. There are some that are open source, like SAMHSA developed uh, what they call the consent to share or C2S tool uh, that was tested. Um, and and entitled. Um, there are there are some that that have been developed that are proprietary and commercial. And and there is this fire consent resource that a lot of work is being done to, to build out use cases for. Um, IHE is working on uh, so so uh, um, uh, is working on some profiles. So, so there's a lot of standards work and, and profiles being done around this privacy consent on fire profile to demonstrate uh, consent based access control. And I think one of the challenges that I'm trying to address is how to look at all of these um, pieces of really incredible and impressive work going on across the industry and frame the, the interrelated challenges um, that multiple sectors are trying to solve in more of a, a coordinated roadmap in order to, to drive success here um, and, and, and come up with a framework that will be viable and more widely adopted. I can totally relate to that that challenge of bringing together disparate processes, disparate groups that are trying to solve similar or related challenges and and aligning that work. So uh, so let's shift gears pun is intended here. Uh, you helped to co-found what's now called the shift task force, uh, which is really something that I've had the chance to work with you on a bit. Um, that where where we're digging into some of these issues. Talk talk a little bit about the the impetus to create shift. What is what does the name mean, uh, et cetera, and and what are the goals of that program? Uh, yeah, definitely. So so the goals are are sort of around some of the very things that we've been talking about, and the name really means that we are we are shifting the paradigm. We are shifting the conversation. Right. This this issue of how to granularly segment data in order to protect patient privacy. Um, you know, it's not it's not a new one. As you you know well, Stephen, that there have been standards uh, developed back a decade ago, um, but widespread adoption has been an issue. So how do we sort of shift the conversation to understand why have these not been adopted? What have been uh, the, the barriers to adoption? How do we pull the industry together to understand the the uh, risks of not adopting uh, uh, these these standards going forward from both a data segmentation and a consent management uh, uh, perspective, and 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 look at this through a health equity lens, right? So so if we look at at some of the barriers to adoption previously, one has been that that previous pilots uh, really only uh, looked at one use case which was uh, around 42 CFR part two legislation protecting the privacy for individuals with substance use disorder seeking treatment from from certain federally funded clinics, which is a great use case to start with. And, you know, my own organization, Cambridge Health Alliance, has has a 42 CFR part two clinic. And, and this is a really important use case uh, to start with. But there are a lot of other high priority use cases as we've talked about, related to reproductive health, behavioral health, social determinants, shared patient records. And the standards haven't been updated yet to support these important use cases. And so, um, you know, for these reasons, I think the the uh, sort of adoption has lagged because we need some solutions for these other use cases as well. Past pilots were implemented at a single site and typically not in a way that supported kind of easy scalability or, or the use of most of the current, you know, uh, use of, of, of sort of current technologies. Um, what I mean by that is like, 
a, a single pilot may have been led by a consulting company, you know, paid by a grant. And right, if I was going to try to do this at Cambridge Health Alliance today, we would have to hire multiple consultants and sort of do this from scratch. You know, as we were talking about, we have to prioritize our work and, and we don't have the resources or the funding to do this right now. And so I think it hasn't been prioritized across across the industry. And and um, in order to do this as well, we have to define what do we mean by sensitive data? SAMHSA developed a terminology value set back at this time, you know, five, 10 years ago, um, but it really mostly supported the 42 CFR part two use case. And real world testing found that um, there were only about uh, 60, they, they, there was only about 60% uh, accuracy in that terminology value set compared with, you know, what clinicians said was was accurate, uh, you know, in, in sensitive data uh, uh, definitions. And so I think there really needs to be uh, some some uh, semantic conceptual models to support implementation as well. And so, you know, there's also this question of, can we just have providers sitting there and, and tagging the data, right? I don't want my reproductive health information going to my optometrist. Well, okay, provider, are you going to just tag all reproductive health data in the record? Well, that's going to add a ton of administrative burden to providers. And then we can't have that. So how are we going to use uh, current technologies, AI machine learning, right, uh, NLP to, to, to help with this, to help with security labeling of, of this data? And finally, the initial pilots, you know, didn't address some of the really critical patient safety and usability issues that start to come up when you're discussing implementation, right? So as we move away from this paternalistic paradigm that we've been talking about and, and, and give competent patients the right to their own data as 21st century cures has sort of moved us toward, is it safe and ethical for informed patients to decide to redact their data and not make it available, right? If that's if that's the case, what does that look like to the person who was intended to receive that data? Should that data still be available for decision support algorithms? Like if I if I decide I, I don't want my antidepressant to be shared with my again optometrist, right? What if they prescribe something that needs to be checked in a decision decision, you know, in a drug drug decision support algorithm? Should that still be, you know, be, be used. And so we haven't really been able to move this forward because a lot of those questions haven't been answered or we haven't given guidance around those. And that's a lot of what SHIFT intends to do. SHIFT was founded very specifically as a cross-industry, cross-community collaborative to take on this challenge. We have a strategic plan and a roadmap with, with clear deliverables designed to get us there. As I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of different pockets of the community that we've tried uh, 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 to, to bring together, that many of whom have, have sort of tried individually to advance this work. And one of our high-level goals was to bring together these expert stakeholders. Now we have over 250 of them from, from healthcare organizations, professional societies, standards development organizations like HL7 and IHE, health IT vendors, like we have, we have Epic, Cerner, Athena Health, others at the table, HIEs and interoperability frameworks like, like Care Quality and Commonwealth, payers, the government, privacy law and ethics experts and, and patients and patient advocates, and bring everyone together to the table to, to work toward a solution together. Um, so to that end, our governing board includes uh, the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, the AARP, HIMSS, uh, the, the, the HIMSS Electronic Health Record Association, IHE USA, uh, the Drummond Group, Test Lab and Certification Body, and ONC sits on our board as well in an ex officio uh, capacity. And so our, our goal is to bring together the community to solve this problem um, from both a technical and a non-technical uh, perspective. It's it's wonderful and very important work, and and I've been impressed watching you kind of shepherd it along. Uh, clearly, Shift is getting a bit more attention these days. At, at Hims, there was a really nice presentation I was able to catch, and then you had a a reception of of the engaged community that I couldn't make because it conflicted with something else. Uh, tell me how how was all of that received? Did do you feel that the convening that occurred there? 
uh, in Chicago was was beneficial to the effort? Yeah, I think it was very well received. I think we've had a, a number of interested stakeholders com- contact us in and afterwards. We're really looking forward to having their voices at the table. Uh, I was particularly excited that we were able to demo from a technical perspective uh, DS4P Fire uh, security labeling in the interoperability showcase. Uh, this will serve as a technical floor for our future reference implementations. We, you know, have that technical work going on as well as uh, some of the more non-technical work uh, implementation guidance. We have a Delphi process uh, that, that that's uh, moving forward to develop consensus-driven um, implementation guidance, and I think that that is starting to take off, and we have a lot of interest in that. I think one of the reasons that it's been so well received is that we're looking at everything through an equity lens, right? Uh, we, we we call ourselves the the independent healthcare task force for equitable interoperability. And and what do I mean by equitable interoperability? What I mean by that is if if I don't have any sensitive data in my record, I get all of the benefits of all of the work that we've been doing over the past fifteen years to build this interoperable ecosystem. If I show up in the ER, right? My, if I show up in the ER across the country, right? If I go to Palo Alto where you are, right? And all the way across the country, my data, my problems, my meds, my allergies, even a lot of non-structured data, unstructured data now, notes and things are show up um, because of all of this work that we've done and continue to work do now through TEFCA, you know, with Health Gorilla now as a as a a, a TEFCA as a human candidate, and, and we're, we're continuing to build for these these pipelines and this interoperability framework. Um, and and we've done so much, and I will you know I I will get so much clinical benefit out of being able to go to the, the ER and my provider having all of this information, not only clinical benefit, but cost benefit as well, because I won't have tests repeated that maybe I had sometime a month ago and don't need to, to have repeated and won't have those costs relate to me or to the healthcare system. But now I'm someone with sensitive data and either I have had to turn off sharing of data myself and I can only right now do that at a very blunt level and turn off all data sharing, or it's done for me algorithmically by my organization in order to comply with state laws. And I either have to sign an additional consent, which maybe I don't want to do because I don't want to share all of my data for for privacy reasons. I'm worried about stigma. I'm worried about legal issues now in this post-Dobbs setting, maybe if I'm crossing state lines. I'm worried about safety issues. I'm worried about data around intimate partner violence or some other uh, uh, issue getting in the hands of someone who who could use it to hurt me, right? And so because there's not the ability to granularly segment the data, all of the data is shut off. And now I go to the emergency room and that provider does not have that information about me. They don't know my medications. They don't know my allergies, right? And maybe they have to repeat testing. And so now I'm getting meaningfully different care. And I would say meaningfully lesser quality care than someone without sensitive data. And and taking this equity lens to to this issue is something that I think has um, really driven this forward. It has gained a lot of um, uh, good reception uh, across uh, the community, across the industry, and especially has pushed this forward uh, uh, in government as well. I think people see the, the need um, to 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 really not just keep kicking the can down the road, but but address this. Well, Hannah, I, I wish we had much more time to talk. We uh, we haven't even begun to talk about the work you've been doing on high tech so far this year, yeah. uh, and your goals for that. Maybe in the last few minutes, talk about talk about how you see your position on the the National Health IT Advisory Committee. Uh, as well as perhaps the, some of the task forces that we're working on together today. How do you see that as as providing an opportunity to advance some of these initiatives? Yeah, you know, I, I am so uh, grateful for the opportunity to sit on on the high tech. And, and I do think that serving uh, on the high tech is, is, a, is a great additional forum to help advocate for shifts work and, and to elevate privacy and equity uh, into the national conversation. Um, I, and I, I think that I can also bring a considerable expertise to the, to the committee in that regard. Um, it's not the only or perhaps even the primary 
uh, reason that I accepted the appointment. I think that I can bring, you know, a wealth of, of real life boots on the ground experience to our recommendations uh, regarding policy and, and standards across uh, the board. I'm very excited to be um, thinking about information blocking and, and TEFCA and, and decision support interventions, all areas that we're considering as part of the HTI 1 uh, proposed rule. I'm really excited to be able to contribute to these conversations. Um, in particular, I think that my longstanding work with vulnerable and historically marginalized uh, populations um, brings an important perspective. And I think uh, from an equity by design lens, which is something that we're talking about a lot on the high tech, um, it's really critical to have these voices at the table both directly, and I hope that directly we'll continue to have uh, more and more voices at the table and, and in the form of advocates like myself. I, I think, you know, one of my key goals is to bring forward the needs of these populations in the ways that I can, recognizing that I can only speak from, from my own ex expertise and my own experience, but can advocate to, to have increasingly diverse voices um, involved in the important work that, that we're doing. Um, in terms of the HTI one proposed rule that we're that we're working on, right? I'm I'm really excited that there is a piece in this rule, um, really looking at privacy and granular segmentation, and I think it shows that that ONC is really taking privacy issues and equity issues seriously. Um, you know, I, I I'm uh, we're we're obviously going to uh, shift is going to going to um, uh, uh, enter comments around this, so I can't fully speak to Schiff's comments at, at this time while they're still still in process. And, and you and I will will be discussing further, you know, the the high tech comments on this. But but at a high level, I, I'm really thrilled to see these issues incorporated, you know, so broadly into the NPRM. Clearly, I, I think ONC sees the value of pushing the industry forward in this direction, and the risks to equitable patient care if we don't really thoughtfully address these concerns as we continue to build out our national interoperable pipelines. So I'm excited to have the opportunity to contribute. And I look forward to what promises to be uh, really fruitful conversations um, now and in the years to come. Well, Hannah, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. And I look forward to our additional meetings later this week. Uh, to continue to dig into this. I, I really thank you for taking the time. And I hope that uh, a, a number of people have had a chance to listen to this whole podcast because uh, there, there's a lot in here. I'm, I'm very happy we did this together. Thank you. Me so too. Thanks for, thank you for the opportunity.